If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And today we have a really special guest with us, Mr. Rob Seacrest, who is the co-founder and president of Polaris Equity Group and manager of the Polaris Fund. Welcome to the show. Did I get that right? It's it's a long introduction, so I had to kind of cheat and, and read. I usually remember, but I just don't want to mess it up. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes, you got it right. All right, so we're, we're talking. Uh, we're, we're talking about, and I was saying uh, before that, looking at doing some research on you. Uh, there's there's a lot of interviews. There are a lot of you know uh, talks about your your advice for investment and cannabis investment in general, but we don't know you. So this is what I, I lo- I'm curious to find out about uh, Rob. So first, where did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up here in Orange County, um, uh, California, in Newport Beach area. Um, and it's where my family's from. And uh, went to school here in Orange County and then went to uh, college down in San Diego. Um, and then moved back uh, 20 years later, um, uh, down, back to Orange County. So where where did you go to school in San Diego? San Diego State. Yeah, because my we just visited my, my daughter's doing her college tour right now. So she wants to stay local in the, I'm, I'm in LA. So we're like you, the UC schools, the UCLA, USC, and then uh, the SD schools. And then, uh, and then we're going to go to Berkeley and check out Berkeley. And But she wants to stay local. So luckily. Uh, 
Any uh, siblings, brothers, sisters? Yeah, so I've got uh, four siblings. I'm the oldest. I have uh, three younger brothers and a younger sister. Uh, where, where in Orange County? Newport, Newport, Newport Beach. Beach. Yes, yeah. yeah. Cool. And uh, did you, when, when you were going, did you guys travel to LA to go out at all or, or you kind of stayed in, in Orange County? Uh, yeah, didn't, I mean, a, a little bit here and there, but mainly Orange County. I, I'm a, so I'm from Philly and I'm, I always try to get this laid land. I, I think like Southern California is such an anomaly for people that are not from here because it's even like I live in LA, uh, but I live in the Valley in Studio City. And people from like the West side, like they don't even go over. I'm like, it's 15, 20 minute drive. What do you mean? No, no, no. It's a different, that's like a different universe. So people don't travel. They find it fascinating. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's just too difficult to back in the day when, you know, you were out uh, rebel rousing around to try to go with those distances. Um, you know, you want to stay very close to home. Well, that's what I was, I was saying because I used to I used to have dispensaries in Orange County, and I remember on Fridays, like I would drive to I think like Costa Mesa, and coming back from Costa Mesa, it would take me three hours to get back to LA. Yeah. So even though it doesn't seem far, but it is. Um, so how you went to school? If what, what did you go to school for? What did you want to yeah, do? Yeah. So. I went to school for business. Um, I ended up graduating in public administration, which is the public sector of business, just because I, I wanted to graduate um, in, in with, within a, you know, a, a reasonable time period. And I just couldn't get my classes. So I took uh, 25 units my last year. Um, and uh, wow. you know, it kind of trained me that in reality, you can achieve a lot more than you think is possible. And, what that taught me is the more busy you are, the more efficient you are, and you become, you, you are all about processes. And, um, you know, I learned, I, I don't think, I didn't learn a whole lot at school. I, I learned a few things, but I learned how to, um, to get things done through processes. And that, that ability is one of the most important abilities that we use still today. If you can't have efficient processes to review and, and organize information, um, then you have no chance of being able to scale your business. Right. So when how, did you go into real estate right away or what, what did you do? At no, um, so I went into my, my family's um, in the medical industry, medical manufacturing. And um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. I went into the medical sector, but not for my family's company. I went into uh, orthopedic sales, which is, uh, medical sales is one of the most tough sales jobs you could possibly have. Uh, nobody wants to talk to a sales rep um, and they got major gatekeepers up. But um, while I was working in my first actual job, I was always working on business plans and working on what it would be that I wanted to do. And, um, you know, uh, I, I raised, did my first capital raise for uh, a restaurant up in the Bay Area. And then the next venture was uh, I launched my own company, which was an action sports company. Um, I launched that in my early 20s, and that was a wakeboard company back in the early 90s. And, um, you know, that company, I got it up to about $2.4 million in annual revenue um, with a high watermark of about 30 um, direct and indirect uh, people working for me. And um, 
ultimately I sold that company and I realized, man, there was so much work that you had to do to, to produce 2.4 million in revenue and get 10% gross net profit. And that's only if everybody paid all their, their 1.6 million of receivables. And it just, it seemed like it was so much effort to do all of that. And I realized I want to do a bigger sales transactions, shorter time frame, and get paid at the close. And so that meant to me, that meant real estate. And I, so I went into international real estate transactions, um, and, uh, started my career there. And shortly after I got everything ramped up, uh, to do that, we had the meltdown occurring in 2007. I uh, had a, 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 about $100 million worth of transactions that were in the process of funding and the total market collapsed. And, uh, you know, I was sitting there and uh, my best friend who, who from high school, uh, Dan, he's the co-founder of Polaris and the co-manager of the fund as well. He called me and said, buddy, um, uh, there is a, a lot going on up here, up in Orange County. Why don't you come on up and um, let's... Uh, Let's 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 see if we can get through all what's what we think is going to happen. And so, um, I came back to Orange County, and um, back during that time, we were we ended up ultimately foreclosing on several hundred properties, and had to reposition about 120 of them. And um, you know that's that experience is was a very important experience because you really don't learn a whole lot when things are all going perfect. It's it's when you have distress situations that you really learn how to refine things and and make things work and uh, so after we repositioned all those assets um we founded Polaris equity group together in 2010 and um here we are today when you say reposition i'm just curious because I, I i have a, a real estate background too but uh, as a broker but i think i was telling you earlier before we got on that you know during our 2007 2008 I also, I, my, so my specialty originally was gas stations. So I, I had a mentor who said, hey, you know what? Why don't you just specialize in something? And I, and I got a gas station transaction and I had no idea about, what do you mean contamination? What do you mean remediation? I had no idea. It was a, a very, very difficult transaction. I finally got through it and I learned. As you said, it's like yeah. you learn, you, you know, drinking out of the fire hose. You like learn. I'm like, remediation. Okay, we'll, we'll do all that stuff. And then- uh, the books were interesting there too. So, uh, so I became that, and then uh, I I got a, a gas station with a strip center too. So I said, hey, you know, maybe I'll do some retail too. So once all, so I, same thing. I had all these people ready to transact, and I couldn't get fun. There's no loans, nothing. You know, it's through not time. So what do you do? So then I had these other guys that came back and started. I had some bank relationships, so looking at non-performing notes. And then what they wanted to do was see if they can do a deed in lieu. So the, the, that whole thing, we started coming. For for those of you who don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Rob, like a deed in lieu of foreclosure. We would go and say, hey, you know, sign the deed over to us. We'll pay you $50,000 to help you get out of your property, maybe, you know, get some debt. But we'll take over, uh, you know, the, the actual property for $50,000. And they were doing all that. It was it was a short window, maybe a few months. They were really transacting there, and then uh, you know the hedge fund started getting involved, and there was big portfolio deals were uh, coming. So when you're saying reposition loan, was that renegotiate the, yeah, the actual so, loan? Yeah. So um, 
it was interesting during that that time um you know the borrowers were a lot of the borrowers of those 200 properties or so we were foreclosing on were doing the, trying to do the right thing these are all investment properties these aren't owner occupied um but a lot of them were trying to make the pay were making the payments um and they were burning the equity that was remaining was diminishing every month you know in five ten percent chunks and i would tell them some of them i had to tell them stop making your payments so we can foreclose we can't your there's going to be no equity left by the time you you're not going to be able to sell this property you're going to be upside down and um it was an interesting time to have to say that to somebody to make them realize look you need to fire sell this thing right away so that you have minimize your exposure on personal guarantees on what that might be um but you know repositioning them was that in the transactions that that of the 200 or so about 120 reverted back to us and that meant that of those they had to depending on what the situation was they had to be completed if they were partially completed and or if they were completed and you know we were holding them we just needed to wait. If we we thought it would be three to year, three to five years total, three years for urban markets and five years for for uh, secondary markets before the value would the, the basis of the value would come back to the same as the original note value, and um, that ended up being the, the case. Um, and so we uh, with those properties, they were all eventually sold and or completed and you know finished and and all moved moved through, which was no. No awesome tasks to have to do, but that's that's what you got to do. So, is that when you decided maybe it's better if we put together a REIT? And I'll ask you what a REIT is, so we can explain to people. So then you can start getting outside investments for uh, you know the real estate portfolio. That decision had nothing to do with it. Um, it you know, it's just that was a that was a systemic you know uh, market collapse that um you know was really unfortunate to see because our loans and our borrowers didn't have those types of loans where it was stated income stated assets and they didn't have the ability to pay for it but yet right when all those those institutional loans are written like that and you had a systemic sorry about that you had a systemic um you know failure across the board and so all these markets are coming onto the onto the market at once it crushes the values across the board and then, then it takes it for everybody so you know um it's uh i i you know today i don't think think that that's the case with the housing market i think that um that today borrowers uh most borrowers i think can still probably afford their their mortgages in the in the few that they can't it won't be systemic across the nation um, to, to where you're going to have a total total collapse across the nations, you know, state, nationwide. So, all right. So, what is a REIT? Yeah. So, a REIT is just a real estate investment trust. Is just a the 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 acronym for um, uh, the tax saving structure that is put together um, for basically individuals to take advantage of the same. Uh, you know, the same tax structures that some of these hedge funds and things were getting many years ago. So a real estate investment trust, there's actually two types that most people don't know. There's equity and uh, REITs, which are the traditional ones, and that those own property. And so they get all the accretive upside for the value increases in, in the portfolio value of the land as it increases. But also if it was to decrease, they would go down as well. 
and then they get the um, the the investors get the qualified REIT dividend is dispersed to them. Whatever rents are collected is dispersed, but it's dispersed as a REIT dividend, and so you get a twenty percent reduction in your tax rate on that federal uh, income. And then what the next part that's really interesting is for um, your state taxes. The investors only pay state tax states state taxes in the state that they're domiciled. That's huge when you have you know states like um, Texas, Nevada, uh, you know Florida with no state taxes. There's a pretty pretty massive incentive there, um, and there's a, there's some other very small ones. Um, there's no you, it, the REIT cleanses UBTI or you. Um, uh, so that for self-directed accounts, you don't have some some accounting issues. But um, those are the primary reasons. Um, and we are a mortgage REIT. So the difference from that or a debt REIT, the difference there is we don't own the property. There is no accretive uh, increase or decrease. So we have, we're a lot more close, we're a lot less risky in the risk profile because there's no upside or downside. We've got the protective equity. Um, but the yields are tr- traditionally a lot higher on, um, a, on the, on the lending model. Um, yeah, but you, you don't get that accretive value. And so most retail investors don't understand the difference. And especially in the cannabis sector, they're, uh, conflating equity REITs with mortgage REITs. And they see IIPR is one of the most popular ones that just went to the moon on the value of the, of the, of the, the equity REIT. And then they, then there's a couple of other publicly traded mortgage REITs that came out. And a mortgage REIT should theoretically never trade that much of a premium to its book value because you're only going to ever get the note values back plus the dividend. Right. And so there's really not a big um, uplift in the in the share price there, but they do typically have higher yields. And so I think that a lot of people misunderstood that and and, and went into some of the mortgage REITs thinking there were equity REITs, but um, that's a probably a conversation for another day. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, what you're saying, if I understand it correctly, your your REIT is uh, is providing the financing for the properties, and other REITs actually hold the the asset themselves uh, against that, right? So it, it makes total sense. Uh, so how'd you get into cannabis, sir? So our local congressman is was Dana Rohrbacher at the time, and we know Dana; he's kind of a character. And um, when he passed the Rohrbacher Blumenauer amendment that defunded the Department of Justice from any prosecution of a cannabis-related business, that meant to us that this was the largest newly created asset class that we could lend on without fear of our borrowers' tenants being prosecuted by the federal government. And so we knew that we had the skill set. We'd originated about 5,000 transactions for about $5 billion. And so we knew we had the skill set to lend on this sector. And we knew that all the real estate in the sector, whether it existed or is going to exist, would need to be repositioned for a specialty use asset to qualify for the license. So we that passed in 2014. Uh, we analyzed the sector. And by 2016, we started originating in this sector. And we quickly realized that this specialty use asset sector uh, was so vastly superior that we decided to be the first dedicated solely to cannabis lender in the sector. And then in 2018, we launched the Polaris Fund. 2020, we converted that to the first private mortgage REIT um, uh, in the sector. 
And we were the first, we were the first dedicated lender. We were the first with a dedicated fund, the first private mortgage REIT, the first to get FDIC insured banking warehouse lines of credit, and the first to get uh, investment grade rated with, um, in, uh, with institutional investors in our bond and do a bond offering. So we've been the first uh, for plowing the path for everybody in the whole sector. Uh, the only thing that we weren't first at was going public, but that's because we didn't want to. We didn't think that it was going to be a net benefit in the long run. And our two publicly traded peers are, are, are paying the price now. Their, their share prices are trading at or below their book value. And that means they can't issue any more equity. And so they're kind of dead in the water while we're continuing to plow on through and we have no volatility of our share price. Yeah, I think that's smart. You know, my, my company was in the same boat a couple of times of, uh, you know, let's go public. There's a SPAC deal. There's this, there's that. We can raise money that way. I was like, I don't really understand. I don't really understand it kind of from a high level, but also let's just make money as a company. And that way we don't have to worry about it. And at some point, if it makes sense for us to do that, we'll do that. But let's let's uh, not follow this trend uh, yeah. that everybody's doing. And I think that the entire industry is suffering for that. So I think I was going to ask you this question. I think you just answered it. I was going to ask you, what is the criteria for winning the uh, the best lender at the Benzinga uh a cannabis conference. I, I would just want to see how you get that trophy. The best lender <laughs> will give to you know Rob. You know we we weren't told what the criteria was, and um, we didn't know what how that was how that was done. Um, there's quite a few lenders in the sector, um, and uh, there are some very sophisticated lenders. There's there's we have a couple of publicly traded peers. We have uh, about a hundred private private lenders out there, and, and numerous banks that are lending. So we weren't told what that criteria was, but they. Um, I was told uh, after the fact, and I haven't had a chance to look at it, that we could go back and look at who the judges were, and that might give me some indication of it. But um, you know, I think that for us, we we've been in the sector the longest. We've done the most transactions. We've had the most payoffs. And as of this week, we'll be the, the largest by by far of any dedicated lender to the sector. Well, congratulations on that. It's hey. it's definitely a need that because it's very difficult to get money in the cannabis space. And by you having that, I, I think you're helping a lot of companies grow. So what what do you, what's the ideal investment? Like, what do you look for in an investment? Um, yeah, so we have two sides. You know, the, we have the borrower side and we're typically... 10 to 30 million is a is a sweet spot for us but we can issue transactions up to 100 million and even on, even more than that if we if we needed to we have ways of of, of of slicing that that transaction up but typically our you know it has to be a commercial building um no agricultural component and um you know we need the, we need to de-risk this as much as possible and in the cannabis lending sector you need an experienced cannabis operator. It is so extremely difficult from just a growing standpoint, not to mention compliance and all the rest of the, the nuances of this sector. So we need a very experienced operator that is just looking to expand their operations. And then we need a, a sponsor that is bank quality. They, they can handle the, uh, their personal balance sheet, their liquidity, their cash flow would support this transaction. Their personal guarantee or the corporate guarantee is 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 what would take this transaction to give us that credit uh, worthiness of that transaction. So 
all those things we look at on the transaction. And then we can always uh, adjust the LTV and the loan to cost. So we lend off of loan to cost basis because there's just truly not much price discovery from arm's length secondary trades happening in the sector. So we believe that the most true form of, of establishing a lending basis is off of cost basis. So we'll end up to 60% of the cost basis on our bridge lending uh, program and our fully stabilized, we go up to 75% cost basis. And you have to have a, you have to have real estate in order for you yeah. to lend. It, you don't lend yeah. on business. It has Correct. to have an we asset. Don't. We, so min, we are as close to the true real estate model as possible. Many of our peers are uh, in the same sector, are lending further down the, f- further, further up the risk profile. Yeah. Um, and they might be including more than just the real estate. Uh, they might be including the enterprise value of the company, the accounts receivable, cash flows, and the, uh, inter- and the value of the, of the real estate license for the cannabis operator. Mm-hmm. We do collateralize that license as well, but we don't give it any value. We just do it in the, that we need that license in the event that we ever did have to reposition that asset. We need the license to be able to reposition another tenant in as quickly as possible. So if, uh, if I would come to you and I would say, Hey, Rob, uh, you know, I have, I have a business. Uh, we are, uh, we have nutrients for uh, cannabis plants that we're creating. We have a warehouse, we're making nutrients. Uh, is Do you care? I don't have a license because I don't need one. I'm just making nutrients. Is that an ideal investment? Or is it, I have a grow that's 5,000 feet. We're producing, yielding this much. We're licensed as a cultivation facility, but you know we're doing so well, we need a 20,000 square foot facility. Yeah. What would be more ideal? Scenario one, we wouldn't do because it's not required for our special. There's nothing special about that transaction. Any bank should be able to do that transaction. There's no specialty license. There's no specialty use. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a nutrients company, you know, just similar to whatever types of businesses that are out out there. We, We would need to lend to a facility that is a licensed cannabis operator. Got it. So either they are a cultivator, a manufacturer, yeah. or a distribution company or something Correct. like that, that it would be really difficult for a, a typical bank to lend to them because of uh, you know the, the, the risk involved. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it because of the risk. It's just more that the um, most banks don't have the compliance set up in place to manage um, these types of borrowers or, de- or even depositors. Mm-hmm. But even still, even for the banks that do, none of them are can be can compete with us as a private lender in the in the bridge lending space. So we've competed against banks for thirty years successfully, and they just can't compete. There's no way a bank can process uh, wire the funds for an approved draw within seventy two hours. It's just impossible. It's it's still a cash business though, right? Uh, Transaction wise, so people um, can they can people pay you in cash? Yeah. So great question. Um, I get asked it all the time. So it's actually not a cash business for our borrowers. Um, so I want to make a distinction. Our borrowers are the owners of the commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. And then the tenants are the cannabis operators. Now, most of our borrowers are owner users. Um, but even though that the, the, the cash might be collected at a dispensary level, that's because there's a buildup because they can't use the credit cards because it's on the federal system. 
all of our bars, every, all 2,000 transactions and their tenants that we've ever seen, all have had banking in place. If we ever saw one that didn't have banking, that would be a massive red flag to us. Um, so we don't accept cash. We did. We wouldn't accept cash when we, even outside of this sector. Um, and there's no cash being exchanged between any of the things that we're doing. It's all done by certified wires, both inbound and outbound. Um, so that's kind of a, a fallacy. So there's tier one banking. There's 704 um, banks listed on FinCEN's website um, that are doing tier one banking, which is for ca cannabis operators that are depositing cash. And so they can deposit that cash once it's banked. They, they wire and move that money around just like anybody else does. Yeah, and I, you answered the question. I, I, I was, I was going to ask whether your borrower, your customer, is the person who says, "I'm going to buy this warehouse, and I have a tenant that's going to come in here, and they're going to grow in here, and I just want you to finance this building," or is it, "I have a business idea, and I just got a license to grow, and I need to get the the real estate, but I also am going to be the the operator." I think you, yeah, you mentioned. We we can do either of those scenarios as long as the tenant operator has has substantial experience. And so we've de-risked the fact that they're not just starting off on doing cannabis. So how do you how, what's your criteria? What's what's the and I'm 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 telling you this question is because I have personal situations. So just to give you a little bit of background, uh so what I started in I started in the cannabis space. 20 some years ago, but in the dispensary space was about 2009, uh, 2010. And we ended up getting one dispensary in Santa Ana. And then we ended up having five all in Orange County, all under the same flag. It was called Cush Kingdom at the time. So I remember, and this was, I mean, it's the Wild West now. It's not the Wild West now. Now it's a legitimate business, but it was the really Wild West. So we finally, and, and the reason I even got involved in this was through real estate. These guys came in uh, to an office. I was just uh, kind of consulting and they wanted to open an alternative pharmacy. We ended up, you know, saying they really wanted to open up a dispensary, had no paperwork, nothing. So I helped them They and they offered me to go in as a, as a partner with them. But this was my experience with the landlord. And this is, goes several different times. So he had the building. We came in, told him what we were doing. Great. And then he was watching us and said, hey, you guys are doing fairly well. Uh, we're going to raise the rent. I'm like, well, we have a lease. All right, well, sue me. I can't sue you because I'm operating illegally. You know, and uh, so it was, it was a very, very interesting time where the landlords could do a lot of different things. And I even had a cultivation facility, same kind of thing. Uh, they're always trying to, you know, kind you of. Have, you should have <laughs> talked to me back then because all you would have had to have done is say, go ahead and sue me, you freaking ding dong. Because <laughs> as the owner, knowing that I'm in a, the real estate, you're just as guilty as me. Um, so he, he the, the, you know, t t there wasn't the Rohrbach of Luminar no. Amendment that, to protect Sue back th that started in 2014. Yeah, but um, that that sucks. Um, that that you know, and a lot of people have been pushed around, but you know, in reality, they were just as guilty as you were. Yeah, of course, they they knew everything, and the and the you know, it was before the Cole memo, and they were supposedly getting fined. So the one thing we just said, you know what, we'll just pay all your fines. Don't worry about it. Just let us stay kind of thing. But it was a, it was a really interesting, it was a really interesting time. And, uh, and I remember going to pay taxes 
with wads of cash. So, and they, they, were, they were, they were very happy to accept. <laughs> they didn't even balk at that. They were like, pass, pass, whatever. It's fine. Uh, personal question. Do you have any kids? Yeah, I, I have a six-year-old. So what, uh, it's too, a little too young, but I was going to ask for, what would you say in, for your kids in terms of cannabis? Like how, how would you speak to them about cannabis? Uh, That's a really good question and I'm happy to talk about it. Um, so I think that um, cannabis is just like any other drug that can be abused. And while my kid and other kids' brains are still developing, I would not promote them using cannabis or alcohol or any drugs. Uh, I, I think that you're you want to have uh, as much of your brain growth done before you venture into the, those things. And, um, you know, so I, I'm not sure what the age in each state is, but um, I, I would not recommend any kids getting involved in anything in an early age, not unless it was prescribed for them for, for whatever medical reason at the proper dosage. But um you know, it's unfortunate because, in fact, I just answered an email today and it was tragic. It was it was from an institutional investor and he said that six people had died. And, you know, from stemming from the use of cannabis, uh, where it started from there. And um, I I had to respond and I said, look, I, I'm sorry. For, that's tragic. I'm sorry for, for your loss. I said, but to conflate that that cannabis is what was that you're not going to invest in cannabis because people have lost their lives. How far do you want to take that policy? Are, are you not going to invest in any company that lends to, to drugstore pharmacies or, uh, or a grocery store that sells alcohol? I mean, where do you want to stop? Um, because it's, it's that, that is the wrong message to be sending. And in reality, I, Normally, I, I, I would just accept it and move past it, but this was a sensitive one for me. Um, and I said, look, I have a kid and I, you know, I don't want my kid to end up in that situation. And, and I feel for you, but I think that you're broad brushing it, it, the, the issue. Um, and I think that in reality, probably what happened with those people and most people is this opioid crisis. And I think that, you know, everybody starts with pot. Well, yeah, pot, pot is where it starts, but it probably started with alcohol. You know, it probably started with cigarettes or something else, but weed is the easier one to say, it, but whatever. Um, our hope is we've, we've financed over 4 million square feet of, of cannabis properties across the nation through, um, the fundings that we've done. And we think that that's probably 15 to 20% of the entire revenue for the entire country. And so there's a significant amount of cannabis that is being produced in our facilities. And if, if just one or 2% of the entire population goes to cannabis as an alternative pain medication, as opposed to opioids, I think that we've probably saved a few lives there. And, and that's ultimately what we want to do is we want to start providing alternatives. In fact, we funded the first DEA license facility in Desert Hot Springs. So the DEA is issuing federal licenses today um, for research to be to, to look at once they have a, a medical use that they can show, then they can deschedule it from from schedule one. And, you know, I don't think the cannabis should be schedule one. 
I do think it should be regulated. I, I do think it's important to, to make sure that kids aren't getting this and, and it's not abused, but if you're going to compare alcohol and cannabis, I think on, on every category, you're going to come out ahead on cannabis as far as what the damage, long-term damage, short-term and impairments of, of being able to operate vehicles and machinery and things like that. So if I understand the person you were speaking about, they said that, uh, uh, there were six deaths attributed to cannabis or cannabis was it was the, the catalyst yeah the gateway the yeah yeah well i mean we've done a study that there's there's a genetic predisposition to opioid dependence and you have sort of one in four individuals that have this uh, predisposition. So if somebody that has a genetic predisposition consumes an opioid, they may actually be almost instantaneously dependent on that. So understanding up front that you have that, but you don't have the same thing with cannabis. And, and what happens is sometimes is you, your brain decides that since they have a, uh, a stimulant from outside that's creating uh, these neurochemicals, they're not going to create that anymore. They're going to start depending on that neurochemical from the outside that's coming in, that's stimulating that. And then when you stop doing that, uh, you, your brain says, hey, no, 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 no. I want that. I'm not, I'm, I'm too lazy to make same, same thing with cocaine and dopamine, but in cannabis, it, it doesn't work uh, that way. It's, it's much more of a therapeutic substance that, that has internal uh, you know, receptors that that create your own neurochemicals uh, to be able to be expressed, especially if you're deficient in certain things to help maintain homeostasis in your body. So I, f- I find it really fascinating. And it, it kind of piggyback on what you said about the DA licenses. Well, so we have a DA approved drug on the market, Epidiolex, that was uh, from GW Pharmaceuticals. And, uh, you know, jazz bottom for seven point something billion dollars to create more of these. Shouldn't based on that, shouldn't we already have a descheduling or a rescheduling since there is a FDA approved drug on the market from cannabis? Um, I'm 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 familiar with jazz that they're actually local here um, and I'm familiar with that that transaction, but I haven't put it to memory of how they have circumvented um, the, the, what the federal rules are there. Um, and I'm not sure if that's being done um, for sale outside the U.S., um, which might be the, the scenario that I can think of off the top of my head. But I, I don't, unfortunately, I would, yeah. most of the stuff I would have the answer for and that one, I, I don't. So. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so just to give you a little bit of insight on there. So GW Pharmaceuticals went through the, the first company did a full clinical trial of a drug for um, childhood epilepsy called Gervais syndrome. And uh, that drug is called Epidiolex. Yep. And they had a second one that was going through FDA approval called Sativax. And that was more of a one-to-one. So the CBD uh the, the drug that was derived from cannabidiol, CBD, which is epidiolex, went through all three phases, was FDA approved, and is a drug that's sold in the United States for that specific condition. Sativax didn't go through uh, all the way. It is being sold outside the United States and is going to come back to get approval in the yeah. you know, European version of the FDA and coming back to the U.S. So there is a drug. Yeah. So based on what you said, if if the derivative is coming from CBD, then it can go through currently under the the hemp act. Um, If if it 
you can derive some amounts of THC through through uh, through hemp. So if that's how they're doing it, then that they can get it through there. If they're going straight THC uh, through through cannabis, that's probably that. So I'm guessing that based on what you just said, they probably went through this, the the hemp for CBD and in the cannabis through there. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think it was a hemp derived, but it, it it's not the point. I, I was just making I was just making the point that there there are clinical studies that have all been completed, and yep. that the I think it's going to take them some time to figure out uh, what to do and how to how to regulate. But uh, speaking of, what do you what do you see sort of as the future of uh, this uh, moving towards you know federal descheduling rescheduling? Do you see maybe there's going to be Several different paths. Was there, is there going to be a medical uh, path? Is it going to be a therapeutic? Is it going to be an, just an adult use? Like, what do you, what do you think? It's so tough to tell because the cat is so the horse is so far out of the barn and across the many different states. And what what the issue? There's several issues that most people don't understand. First of all, there is not really a way to get the feds to legalize it it would become un- it would become the prohibition would end and so that's actually the language you would want to use is end prohibition not federal legalization because federal legalization would require a a, a a different direction to go so if if prohibition is ended on cannabis then it falls back to what the states have done for those states. Um, and you know, what they've said, and then the fed would not interfere in that particular circumstance. So I think that ultimately it's going to remain as a state-based issue. Um, uh, that's what, how I, that's how it's been going so far. And I think that that's, what's ultimately going to happen. Um, I do think though, that, that in this midterm, after the, the, in the lame deck session, there's a small probability we might get some, some, minimal um, legislative uh, decriminalization, but nothing addressing the regulatory or, or ending a prohibition. Um, and I, I think that in the next five years, the re- remaining 12 states or so will have some form of can- cannabis legalized, most likely medical um, will happen in those states. Even, even uh, I think it's Idaho is probably one of the, the tougher ones to do. Um, so I think that it's, it's going to happen, but to get it to where it's it's to, to get the medical side is difficult. How are you going to have something being sold in the pharmacy, medical grade, that you could buy at, at the retail store right next door at the same quantity? So, I it's 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 going to be interesting how how that market develops. Um, I can think of a couple of ways they could they could do that. They could limit the amount that is sold in the re- in the retail stores, but. I just don't see the states pulling back on what they've already issued because now the feds have come in and said we're doing the medical uh, side to this. So it's yet to be determined. There's a lot, lot to be unpacked there, and um, happy to happy to go deeper in if you want. But I don't know how much. Yeah, time. no, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think there was a precedent that was already set. Uh, we had alcohol prohibition. Prohibition had been repealed. And then, you know, states get to decide their interstate commerce and then they create these little 
groups and packs between states. So you have these tri-state areas, New York, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, and then Pennsylvania said, no, 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 we're going to take all the money. We're going to be the, the state because you have to buy the alcohol through our state stores. So yeah. every single state did decide on their own. And I think there's, you know, that precedent set. So I completely agree with you on that. And as far as the pharmacies go, et cetera, I mean, you have OTC products sold in the pharmacy, which is, you know, sold in the dispensary or whatever. But some of them, you have to go show your driver's license because they have a higher dose of something or another. So maybe there's a, a way to be able to uh, to take a look at that and doing something similar to that uh, too. Um, so what are your plans about expansion? Are you looking to expand in different countries or, uh, or is this uh, just like you have enough to handle it in the U.S. or can you even uh, go outside of the U.S.? So we, today we know that the U.S. market for the real estate is about a $50 billion asset class if, once it's fully built out. And there's been about uh, $4 billion worth of credit uh, issued. So we've got quite a bit of runway to go here in the United States. But there are some amazing opportunities uh, internationally. We're capable of underwriting and funding transactions internationally, not from the not from the poor's fund, but we have that capability. We have been in Europe, but we have been overseas. We have um, looked at transactions, and um, we we may be willing to do something. We are the most experienced lender in the whole United in the whole world, um, so we've got the most data points, and we would be the ones to do it if we're going to do it. It is something that we think about. Um, eventually, we will probably launch a fund um, for international stuff as well. Um, but today, we, we, we're up to our eyeballs and um, funding transactions. Uh, we're going to issue about $56 million worth of transactions uh, later in the next two days. Um, so, you know, we're, we're pretty busy here. Um, but uh, there are some amazing opportunities. In, in Europe, for example, the Euro- European Union, that'll probably get totally ratified there completely for the whole European Union before the United States, just because the, the cat wasn't out of the bag so far with with how it's been done over there. Um, Portugal has got a pretty good lead. Um, Germany is talking about recreational fairly soon. Um, uh, but we, when we looked at it already, the market is so small for, for our capacity that it wasn't worth our time yet to, to put up, to go, to build up a whole nother, uh, fund in, and what the, what the, what the infrastructure we would need for that. So we decided to just let that market continue to develop. So what's your, uh, goal of your fund in your, uh, in the next like, uh, 12 to 24 months? What would you like to our do? domestic fund or did you say your, your, dom- your domestic fund I'm yeah sorry. so we're we're on our we're on track to we want to get to a billion dollars uh, assets under management by next year we think that we'll end somewhere between four and five hundred million um this year in this q q4 um so that's our our goal that we're we're trying to to shoot for um i think we've got a path to get there but that's that's where we're, we're headed um and um you know just continue to make good deals for for our investors and our borrowers and to make it an equitable transaction on, on all sides so that it's fair. Um, you know, yeah. we're not trying to grind every ounce of, of profit out of our borrowers. And, you know, but we have to make it appealing to for our investors to be in the sector. So I think we've done a good job balancing that. And that's why I think that we went, went won the, the Investor Most Innovative Award. On, there you go. Personal, there you go. You're, 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 I could be wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, now that I think you're right, I, I don't think you need to know the criteria. If, <laughs> why? Why? There's nobody else in the space to, to really compete with you in that way because you said there's a few publicly traded companies, but you guys are definitely the, the leader in the space. So, uh, makes total sense. Um, so, I have a few questions that I ask uh, all of my guests. Uh, some of them may be complicated to answer, so I, I, I think you can you can handle them. It's, uh, please describe what your first experience with cannabis was like. Uh, yeah, probably when I was fairly young, um, you know, just, it's just part of the natural part of get growing up as a kid and, and just tried it. It wasn't really for me. So um, I stayed away from, from cannabis pri- primarily. Um, and most of my friends weren't big uh, pot smokers. Um, and it seems that, you know, through high school, there is kind of a group that goes that direction. And um, I didn't go that 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 direction. Did you have like a, a, an experience that you didn't enjoy? Was it a... I, um, yeah, for, for me, I, I, even as a young man or kid, I, I like to be in control. And it wasn't that I was out of control. I just felt that there was too many thoughts going on in my head that I wasn't right. used to having to manage. And that was an un- uncomfortable feeling. And it just wasn't my deal. Got it. Got it. All right. So I'm a big music guy. Probably you can tell behind me. <laughs> uh, so do you remember what the very first concert you ever attended was? I do, but only because I was taken by my neighbors. Uh, and I almost don't want to say what it was, but uh, it was the Go-Go's, our next door neighbors for for their kid's birthday party had an extra ticket with front rows. So it was a pretty cool experience, you know, being, I was really young. I was, you know, just a teenager or so, early teenager. Um, but uh, so totally sober, you know, very young kid. But, uh, <laughs> but, but Go-Go's, why? They were great, man. Belinda Carla, she was Oh, hot. she was singing right to me, buddy. Yeah. I was like right at the front, little kid. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah, I had a, I had an incident with uh, with her. So I, I had uh, I had fake ID when I was really young, like 16, 17, so I could go to the older clubs. Oh, there was cool. a club in Philly, and uh, it was a very underground, dingy place. Uh, but Belinda was there, and she was stunning. I couldn't believe how beautiful she looked in oh, person. Cool. And she was so cool, so I got to dance with her in a club. And oh, I was cool. like 16, 17, so... Uh, what do you? What was the last concert you ever attended, or you attended? Dang, I, I know you're busy. You probably don't have a lot of yeah, time. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, we're we're discussing my my son likes um, Imagine Dragons, so we're we're yeah. working on on um, <laughs> on on trying to coordinate that. Dang, uh, oh, uh, so most of the stuff that I, you know, electronic music, uh, you know, uh, Tiesto, and all kinds of. of Stuff like that. Uh, lots. Those are probably the, the the more recent things. The, more of the EDM stuff. Yeah, and, and just being in advance that those are hap- that's happening. It wasn't really that. Um, yeah. So I, no, a band concert. I can't remember the last. <laughs> I can't. That, I'll have to think about that for a minute. Hey man, Scorpions are playing tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see them in White Snake. It's the old people's uh, uh, concert, so we'll be, we'll be there. Uh, what about the? Uh, you know, first album that you, you purchased? Uh, you remember? I, you know, I remember purchasing um, Rush when I was in, pretty pretty young. Um, that's that's one of the ones I can remember. So, so I know you're not really a consumer of cannabis, but in general, 
maybe you can say, what has cannabis meant in your life? Yeah. So, you know, I'm at the point in my life where I don't really, so the only thing I use cannabis for today is I'll occasionally use um, for THC, CBD blend to sleep. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not a um, I'm not using it for psychoactive properties to get to get high. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big drinker or a big uh, partier. So um, th- that's my my lifestyle is so busy doing other things. And when I do have free time, I, I typically am either spending it with my my kids, my family, or I'm driving on the racetrack or I'm, I'm snowboarding or something where generally I need to have as maximum faculty capacity as possible, especially driving on the racetrack. And so there's just no way I could compromise that. So I see the M hat. Uh, so uh, tell me about the the racing part, because uh, I see you you lit up when I asked that question. Uh, have, have Did you get a chance to drive the Porsche track? Uh, uh, yeah, I've, I've driven the the Porsche driving experience. I've, yeah, yeah, that's right. So I, I, I drive with BMW at their the thermal club and I've trained with them um, for years and years and years. And I've trained with them on the Nürburgring and it's Spa. And so, you know, today I, I'm honing my skills on the Nürburgring once a year. So I tra- work here and then I, you know, I drive here and then I take, take all that and I go to the Nürburgring. But, but the funny part is, is that now I've gotten past the limit of the M cars, and now I'm had to switch to the GT3. Uh, oh, Porsche. yeah, GT3. So, 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 do you drive an M? You, you drive a BMW? Uh, yeah, so I I daily drive an M uh, sedan, and um, but which one? M5. Yeah, but at the Nurburgring, you the the M M M4 was what normally I'd be driving there. You're maxing out at a, at a time of about seven minutes and 35 seconds. It's like the world record for that car. Wow. And in, in the GT3, the first, the first time I'm driving a, a Porsche ever, I'm doing 740s. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I'm only 40 seconds off the world record in that car, but that's how much better that car is than the M4. And it's just, it's just incredible how different a car that are supposed to be relatively comparable, just not even close. Yeah, I, I would say they're not really comparable. I think it's two different cars. I'm not a humongous car guy, but I used to have an M3 uh, years ago. And then driving that is a, is a great experience, but it's not the same as driving a, a, a Porsche. I think it's, it's different. Um, so I'm going to ask, I don't ask typically, but since you're a car guy, what about like a, a Tesla, uh, like a Tesla S? How would you compare that? I'm not opposed to them. It's just that the way I drive and the things I do, the, the Tesla would be burned up in two in 10 minutes. And then I'd yeah. be out of a car for the rest of the day. Like if I took it to the track and I do a lot of driving in the mountains or rallies and things like that, there's just no, not, nobody's going to all stop and wait for me to charge up for two or three hours. If, if there's a charging port and if it works. Um, so, I mean, I do have a, uh, electric scooter i ride back and forth to my office for a couple miles here um but uh it's not practical the next evolution of the bmw uh m cars is is electric assisted and that's practical for me because i don't need all that power and i can just do the electrical you know electrified uh driving just to and from my office and when i get out on the track or if i'm doing something i can use the rest of the power so i'm okay with that 
yeah, I drive a hybrid too. That's uh, definitely makes uh, makes sense uh, for that. And I, I agree with you. You can't do the same thing. You have you have the push, like you go, but it doesn't have the same. There's no gears, and it's it's different kind of drive. But I, I agree with you. All right. So final bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. My room, uh, I I have a relatively clean room. I was actually a computer nerd. I wrote uh, computer code and taught myself and was one of the youngest computer companies in the world at the time. Um, and uh, so nothing crazy there. No, didn't have a bunch of posters or anything, just, just a normal room. Um, no, nothing spectacular. No, no Christy Brinkley on the wall. No, 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 no Lamborghini Countach. No, I was into cars, but I just, I, I just thought that you know, you just go, just. I didn't have that. I didn't do that. Uh, Rob, where can people find out more about you? Get in contact with the fund, yeah. or yeah. So if people are interested um, on the loan side, it's you would email info i n f o at Polaris Equity Group, and Polaris is P E. L-O-R-U-S, and then the word equity group spelled out.com. If you're interested about learning more about our fund, uh, you would email IR for investor relations at polarsequitygroup.com. And just to give a quick uh, information on the fund, our fund has got about 350 million assets under management, makes monthly distributions. We have a 1.5% asset management fee, an 8% PREF, and then an 80-20 split, 80% going to the investors. And our target yields between Net is between 12 and 15 percent each year, which we've achieved every year. We've been in full operation, which is now we're in our we're we're completing our fifth year now. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. And uh, I'll make sure that I tag all those things on social when we get this posted. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.